Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. I have a very special guest with me here today. Dr. Doug George is here. Hello, Doc. Hey, how's it going? So if you don't mind, can you just tell the folks a little bit about how did we get where we are today? How'd you get into EMS? How'd you get into emergency medicine? And kind of how'd, what brought you to Vermont? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of questions there. But uh, my background in EMS kind of started as a volunteer firefighter in my hometown. Just was looking for something to do, 18, 19 years old, and uh, decided to join the fire department. Initially, like most, was just a pro B firefighter, but eventually went ahead and got my EMT and did that through uh, Knowles, actually, and got my wilderness EMT at the same time over the summer and spent a lot of time doing that and serving kind of my neighborhood. Things nice. went from there. Yeah, we've we've all kind of been there. A lot of us start in the volunteer fire service. And then you did some work out in, was it New Mexico or? Yeah, so then the story kind of gets a little bit longer there. Uh, spent time volunteering in my hometown, worked as an ED tech for a number of years, took some time off as a whitewater raft guide, used my wilderness EMT during that ch- time. Uh, primarily in New England, I was did that in Maine. Met my now wife, uh, who's from up in that area. So that they'll, they'll tie back in a second. And decided to go back to med school. Went back to Chicago. Had interest in coming back into New England region because my wife. So did my residency training in emergency medicine at Boston Medical Center. Subsequently, had a strong interest in EMS throughout my four years there. Spent time with Boston EMS. Spent time as an EMS resident, training, getting ready for fellowship. Uh, and I kind of did a nationwide search and found that uh, New Mexico was the program for me. Very operational, very hands-on, opportunities to be on the flight crew, opportunities to be in the field on a flight car response. Really looked at their system and thought to myself, that's the kind of place that I'd like to bring that back to northern New England. So uh, had the opportunity to come back to Vermont. and was very excited for that. Perfect. Well, we're definitely glad you're here both in an EMS environment and just on the podcast. Yeah, excited to be here. So I have you here today. We want to talk about traumatic brain injuries. I actually heard you give a lecture on this through the District 3 medic training. I thought it was really good. I also think it's something that we see a lot of, and I think there's a lot of times where they go unrecognized. We kind of deliver them to the hospital. We know they're sick, but we don't really process everything that's happening. Um, I know when I was in Williston, I dealt with a lot more TBI stuff because we're dealing with high-speed car wrecks and kind of areas like that. But I think it's something that we should at least cover. So the first thing I want to cover is just what is a TBI and and where might we see them? Yeah, so a TBI in general, when we think about what that is, it's a traumatic brain injury. And it can encompass things as far as going all the way from concussions, simple concussions, to uh, severe brain injuries where we're having bleeding, bleeding in the brain, comatose patients, patients who are unfortunately not going to survive or non-survival head injuries. So it kind of ranges from one extent to the next extent. There you go. That makes a lot of sense. And who might be experiencing traumatic brain injuries? You know, where might we see them? You know, we get, think of, we get a dispatch call. What would we start queuing in that? Okay, this could be a TBI. Yeah, I think any blunt uh, blunt traumatic injury, anything from falls, from your fall or even a lift assist, you might even have to think about it in that case, all the way to your more severe sounding, uh, you know, that classic, oh, this is going to be a big one uh, type of MCI or other type of injury. Yeah, for sure. And I remember, you know, when I back when we did the paper 1093 sheets, there was always, a, you know, that little box on the back that said, you know, does the patient take blood thinners, you know, are they on anticoagulants? Um, is that something that maybe we start to think about when it comes to either TBIs or internal bleeding or anything like that? Absolutely. I, I think brought up a few points there. Uh, you know, first of all, about your question about the blood thinners. Yeah, it increases your risk for having bleeding in the brain and taking something, a mechanism of injury that 
Otherwise, you would think it wouldn't cause a significant brain injury, as in a significant bleed that needs intervention or needs monitoring. And all of a sudden, it takes that mild, uh, minor mechanism of injury and makes it more concerning and more likely that there might be significant injury. I think with that said, when it comes to the 1093s and our, our cancellations and refusals, we tend to like to ask that question, not because per se it's going to change the patient's ability to uh, refuse care, but sometimes it's nice to remind them of what the risks are. Um, so by reminding them that they are on blood thinners and that that puts them at high risks, gives them a more informed decision-making opportunity. For sure. And I know I had really good trainers throughout my programs and a big emphasis was put on that informed consent. You know, if we go to somebody, they tip over, they fall down, they smack their head on the ground and we say, okay, you don't want to go. Great. See you later. That's a lot different than saying, hey, listen, you know, you take uh, Plavix, you know, you fell, you've had a stroke previously, you hit the side of your head or the back of your head or somewhere where we're concerned about it. Like I already see a hematoma starting, you have pain on palpation, like you feel dizzy, you feel weak, you you know, you understand that I can't confirm or deny that you have a brain injury until they get, you know, that differential CT scan or some sort of evaluation by a medical professional. That type of refusal is a lot different than a refusal if you just show up and say, you know, all right, you don't want to go. Okay, goodbye. Right, exactly. That 20-year-old who just smacked their head, no medical problems, much different than that 70, 80, 90-year-old on blood thinners with a lot higher risk factors. And that's definitely the difference between your high-risk refusal and kind of your standard refusal process. And you want to make sure you document well and, and provide the patient with as much opportunities to make an informed decision as possible. Yeah, and I think uh, sometimes the QA guys can always make fun of me because I sound like a, you know, one of those... Uh, car insurance people because I'll say right in my refusal, you know, these risks, the risk of an unseen head injury was explained to the patient. The patient verbalized the understanding of those risks. The patient signed the refusal with informed consent. This person witnessed, you know, and they will call 901 if anything changes. This is their current plan. So it's a whole little blurb that I do, but, you know, I've also had people that are like, yeah, well, you know, you're pretty covered. You know, what else do you really need to know? So I try to do my best to do that as goofy as it sounds to say, like, these are the risks. The patient verbalized understanding of these risks was understanding that you know, risk of injury and death is not limited to these specific conditions that an over, you know, overarching um, thought process has been put into the refusal. You know, we try to do that as best we can. Uh, it's actually super important. And I think until you've had, uh, it's a rare training opportunity, but one that is amazing is to actually have a, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of scripted court case or a, uh, a fake training court case where you actually bring in lawyers and see what it feels like to be put on the stand. And they'll pull a case from the past six months and look at it. And it's your documentation. And they'll treat you as if you were really on the stand for that or, or there was a civil case. And going through that training a few times, it really trains you and teaches you. That's the best training you can get in understanding how you should really be writing your charts and your documents. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've actually yeah. never heard of that training. That's really cool. We probably should do that sometime. Yeah, I've done it once or twice. It is uh, <laughs> both for ED and EMS. It is uh, truly eye-opening. That is really cool. Those are some of the best written charts I've ever seen the months after that course. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, for sure. I yeah. did hear one time, um, did, not to get too much on refusals, but I did hear one time I had instructors say, if your times aren't correct, if they don't match up with the system times that are in the dispatching system, that's one of the easiest way that a defense attorney will throw out your report is because they'll make the case, you know, if the dispatch arrival on scene transporting, if those times are not correct, how can we trust anything else in the report? If those are not accurate, how is anything else accurate? They will look for any loophole they can get. Uh, sure. I do have a 
not a personal background, but uh, family and, and other background in that. And I've resourced them on the side, not official consultation, but yeah, just yeah. to yeah. get an idea for what yeah, they do yeah. and how they do it. Um, but that's true. And I think with that said, though, it, you can use your documentation, your narratives as an opportunity to explain things that don't match up. So if you do see that and there's no way you can change it, just explain it. Anytime yeah. you could explain something in your in your report, that usually means that uh, that should come up or resurface. There's an explanation. Uh, that usually is is a good correction factor. Yeah, for sure. So just to get cool. back to TBI, so there's a couple different types that pretty much every EMS program will cover. I know when I took my EMT, my AEMT, my paramedic, my flight, all that stuff, these big three are pretty much covered in every single program for at least a couple pages. So they're the epidural bleed, the subdural bleed, and the subarachnoid bleed. So let's just start with an epidural bleed. What is happening in an epidural bleed and where might we see it? Yeah, so usually the epidural bleeds can uh, be a little bit more tricky sometimes to find out. Uh, the traditional training or thinking and, and thought process with the pathophys of those is that it's a, a middle meningeal artery, uh, and it's kind of on, on the side of the brain. And usually what happens is those people have a, a, a traumatic injury and have an episode with tra- traumatic head injury. They'll have a headache, and then they'll have this period of lucency where they're totally normal and totally fine. And then that follows with the crashing and the more serious uh, signs of head injury after that. And that's based off of kind of how that uh, artery bleeds and gets injured uh, when it gets uh, uh, the initial trauma. So, yeah, I think one of the things they told me, not that we do too much, you know, CT reading or scan work um, in EMS, but for you guys is um, if you look at it, they said with the epidural bleed, it can look like a football kind of on the side of their head. And that's a pretty classic shape of an epidural bleed. Any truth to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. There is truth to that. That's how we kind of identify them on CT scan. And it, it has to do with where the bleeding is uh, and the layers of the the dura uh, and the epidural linings and how it expands. And it expands kind of in that uh, football style shape, as you described. So that's yeah. how we see it. Perfect. So what about a subdural bleed? What, what might be happening in subdural and where might we see that? Yeah, you know, generally speaking, subdurals tend to be, uh, if anything, the lower mechanisms of injury in your elderly patients. So uh, as we all are uh, going to experience and or and or have experienced as we get older, our brain does shrink. It's part of the natural way of things. And as our brain shrinks, the vessels that connect to the dural lining and into our brain, uh, those start to stretch. And those are definitely, those are venous uh, veins that are doing that. And as they stretch, they become more apt to, as your brain shifts and moves and there's more room to move, there's more likely going to be shearing stress on those subdurals. So they tend to be slower bleeds. They tend to be a little bit more insidious. They tend to be in our elderly patients with lower mechanisms of injuries or people on, on blood thinners as well. Yeah. And like, we, like, exactly like you said, those are the people that are on blood thinners. And we know as, as patients get older, there's a higher risk that they're going to be on blood thinners, you know, because between atrial fibrillation or a previous heart attack, previous stroke, you know, you might see anything from, you know, one baby aspirin to, you know, people are on some heavy hitters like the plavix that we talked about or things like that. So um, definitely important to think about when we're doing refusals. I mean, all of those mechanical trip and falls with anything to do with their head, I really try to take a minute, you know, even if I have to sit in a, you know, in a chair in the kitchen table and talk to them for 30 minutes instead of a 10 minute refusal. If I think, a, you know, elderly person's on blood thinners, they fell, they hit their head, especially with loss of consciousness, I pretty much do everything in my power to convince them to go up. And honestly, I find in those cases, family can be super helpful. You know, just bringing the family or the daughter in and saying, like, hey, listen, you know, I'm I'm a paramedic. I'm really worried about this person for these reasons. This is really high risk, you know, and something as simple as sometimes I'll just say to a patient, listen, I'm not in the business of forcing people to go to the hospital when they don't need it. But 
in my training, I think sitting here for 30 minutes and speaking to you and making sure you understand the risks and really informing you of why I'm worried, I think that's worth my time, you know, because my job's ultimately to take care of the patients. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of them are nervous because, you know, what if I can't go back home? What if I lose my independence? Things like that. And if we can kind of communicate why those risks are not more important than actually what's going on right now with the head injury, sometimes that can be a little better. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of concepts there. Uh, you know, those subdural bleeds in the elderly patients with the brain, you know, being a little more shrunk, there's more room for there to bleed before you'll start to see some of this, yeah. the obvious signs or symptoms. Uh, and with that said, with the family member, that's always a key person to bring in. I frequently, when I'm in the field or, or providing uh, medical direction, will recommend that folks really pull in the family members and have that discussion with them and document the other discussion and occasionally have them co-sign off that you had that conversation. I think that's a great way to also educate the family what to watch for concerning things. So if, if the patient is staying home, that is the plan. So when they're staying home, they're going to, the family will watch out for some of those concerning signs or symptoms. And I think you just said it too, that extra time, spending that extra time to go through it. And that's going to show on your run reports too, that you spent that time with that patient. And that's once again, I think what's best for our patients. Yeah, and it's not a it's not a linear association. If you go to a you know a transient person who's sleeping on a bench, and you have a bystander call and say they're worried about them, and we poke them and they wake up and they're fine, they don't want anything, they don't need the ambulance, they're happy, healthy. That could be a much quicker call, you know, than a little lady who lives alone who fell. There's blood on her kitchen floor. She feels like she has a headache but doesn't want to go. Some of them obviously are going to take some more time than others for sure. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes that going back to dispatch and the nature of the call, right? The concerned enough to call, not concerned enough to stop and check yep. in on somebody yep. versus the you know close family member who's really worried, who's taking care of this person every day of their life and yep. knows them in and out and something's off. That yep. means a lot of different things to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know one of the challenging situations I had recently, which actually did end up being a huge intracranial bleed, the individual had a disability. And so there was no one else on scene with a reliable history that didn't have a disability. So it was really, really challenging to try to find what the baseline was because that person had a different baseline than what you know we're able to communicate with. And once we got the another family member on scene who knows them really well, we were able to have that conversation about like, hey, you know, you know, are their eyes normally looking both in the same direction? Well, yeah. And then we're, you know, get to that point of like, well, one of them is deviated. Like we think something's wrong now. Or you know, why are they touching their head? Like, do they normally touch your head? Is that a normal thing for the person with this type of condition? Well, no, he's never done that before. Okay, we need to go, you know, and then you take a set of vital signs. And I think this person's blood pressure still holds the hypertensive record. It was like 270 over 140. Um, and they ended up getting a craniotomy later. But that's a patient where, wow. you know, I could see people showing up and being like, well, they have a disability, you know, they can't communicate normally. So they're okay now. But taking that second, like we said, to just, okay, like, is it normal for them to touch your head like that? Or are they experiencing a bad headache that they can't communicate? Or, you know, um, having that that other person, even if it's a neighbor or, you know, if the mailman's right there and the mailman knows them, like, hey, is this, do they look different to you? You know, and I think that plays into it in stroke also, you know, like, Huge. do they normally speak like that? Do they normally look like that? So um, the last brain injury you want to kind of cover that's big in EMS is that subarachnoid bleed. So where might we see that and kind of what's happening in a subarachnoid? Yeah, from my experience, subarachnoids can kind of pop up in any traumatic situation. Uh, maybe one might say, you know, less likely in the low mechanism injuries, a little bit more of a higher mechanism of injury. Uh, we do see it to tangent away from traumatics. It is the traditionally discussed uh, in the non-traumatic head, uh, head, head bleeding 
uh, specifically sometimes aneurysmal bleeds. So if people have aneurysms there. Um, and, you know, the classic teaching and thing to remember for uh, all of our EMS folks out there is that's the thunderclap headache, worst of their life out of nowhere, once again, in an atraumatic setting. Um, and sometimes every once in a while people can describe if they have an aneurysm, they'll have something called the sentinel bleed, um, which is where the aneurysm leaks a little bit. You know, it's reaching that critical size and it's ready to, to burst and it kind of leaks out a little bit. And people describe this kind of vague-ish yeah, I had this like weird headache a day or two ago, and now they have this worst headache of their life. So the you know pulling out those details can sometimes be helpful in eliciting uh, different types of bleeds. Yeah, and I think we've talked about it a little bit, but one of the things I always put a lot of stock into is what you said earlier, which is what made you call the ambulance? Because I you know we go to people all the time that have headaches, and if you go to let's say you go to like a thirty year old female who's experiencing a headache and she believes it's from a migraine, if we go there and that person has you know, three or four headaches a week, why did you call the ambulance today? And a lot of times, if you dig into that a little bit, it'll be, well, this feels different. This is the worst of my life. And that's where we have to start thinking about, okay, I understand you have a migraine history. I understand you don't want to go to the hospital. I understand you're worried about being there all day. I understand that that's inconvenient and you're worried about this thing, that thing. But if you called 911 and you have headaches all the time and this feels different, something's wrong. Something is up. Oh, yeah. When it comes to the migraines, I... I one of the first things I just ask in the room, especially a person with migraines, I'll just say, is this different? And how is it different than your normal migraine? If the answer is no, then my, a lot of times my next question, at least from an ED perspective and in a hospital perspective is what normally works for you? Yeah. But if the answer is different, then I really dig into those details. Like what's different? How is it different? What does that mean for you? And then of course, what does it mean for me? And what am I going to look for in an exam? Yeah, and I, I can't tell you, I know you know this, but I can't tell you the amount of times where I've gone to someone with altered mental status or something or other or is acting different, this thing, that thing, and there's nothing really huge on any of our vital assessments or anything like that. We get them in the hospital and they have a bleed. I can't tell you how many times I've been to that. Um, and it's just, I personally have a really hard time with refusals on people who've suffered a head injury, especially if there's blood thinners, especially if they're different. It's really, really, really hard for me to get there. Um, and it requires a lot of phone calls and a lot of talks with family. I don't, I can't think of a time where I've refused someone if I've really been nervous because I'm a pretty tenacious person and I'll just sit there and I'll just talk to them over and over and over. There's nothing saying I can't be there unless they explicitly kick me out of their apartment, you know, and in my mind, if I really believe someone is at a huge risk, I'm going to take the time and sit there and be like, listen, I really don't want to leave you here. I'm just going to sit here and continue to tell you why I'm worried about you. I'm worried about this thing and that thing. And a lot of times I found that if you just express your experience and why you're concerned, most of the times they'll change their opinion. If you say like, listen, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm dealing with a lot of people. I've seen a lot of these. I believe you are at risk. And I think it's worth going and getting looked at. And I think a lot of times that carries a lot of weight because other people maybe have never seen a brain bleed. And if they know you come from an environment where you see these things and you say, I believe you're at risk, a lot of times they'll they'll come up. So and we get those calls all the time from medical direction. And a lot of times, you know, we'll get uh, you, Nick, on the phone or somebody else and you're telling me I'm really, really concerned. And that's when I, if anything, we I try and provide more ammunition for you. Okay, yeah. talk to the family, get them more engaged. You know, do the things that I think you're already doing, but really reinforce that. And, you know, every once in a while we get the person who just needs to hear it from somebody at the hospital or a doc or their doc or somebody else. And I, you know, sometimes their primary care and I'll be like, fine, call them. You know, have the, I promise you or they'll put me on the phone with them occasionally, which is not my favorite thing to do, but uh, I don't mind. And I'll uh, 
their biggest thing is they're like, oh, well, my doc, I'm like, your doc would tell you to go to the hospital right now. I can promise you that. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that's all they need to hear is, is a familiar uh, person that they know or someone else that they know is worried about them that's going to re- give them that recommendation. Yeah, and for and some of the things I've picked up over my time in EMS is those kind of social experience pieces, which is what you just talked about. If they really don't want to go to the hospital and they think their doctor might say something different, I'm not above the position to just, okay, let's call them. Let's call them right now. Let's like, I'm not, I have nowhere to be. I'm here to take care of you. If you believe your doctor is okay with you staying here, let's call him and explain what happened. And I'll talk to him as a medical professional and say, Hey, I've noticed, you know, an ink, a widening pulse pressure. I think they have a headache. They have a mechanism consistent with a TBI. They, you know, they feel different. Like it's been this amount of time, which makes me suspicious of these things. In my experience, I've never had a physician or a family doc hear that and go, yeah, they can stay home. Most of the time they just talk to me like, listen, Louise or whoever, like you need to go to the hospital. Like, and then that person's like, well, I trust Dr. So-and-so like, you know, I don't know you, but I know Dr. So-and-so and he wants me to go. And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. You yeah, know? absolutely. And, you know, I think with all that said, at, at the end of the day, if they aren't 1093-able, right, they're not, they don't have capacity if they're confused, altered. And that's really, as we talked about earlier, the change in baseline, right? And we talk about that change in baseline being a key factor, especially for your patients who have other disabilities or anything else that makes you know a different physical exam. It goes back to that. So if there's a change in that baseline and that does preclude them from making an informed decision, that is a patient that has to come up to the hospital irregardless of their wants and desires. Uh, if they can't make an informed decision and understand the risks of refusal or have a family member that could speak for them on that, that's somebody who's got to come up. Yeah, for sure. And and like you said, we can definitely get to that point. And my usually what I'll tell the patients is, listen, I don't have to I don't have to talk to you. I'm not going to poke and prod you in the back of the ambulance if you don't want to. My only goal is I need you to go up and speak with a physician. I need you to go to the emergency department and speak with a physician. And one of my favorite lines is, I, w- I work for the hospital. The hospital is the one that gives me my license. And they tell me that it's important that you go up to the hospital. And at this point, I'm a messenger. My job is to get you from where you are to the hospital and ensure you don't encounter any life threats. And if you do, I'm going to manage those on the way to the hospital. Ultimately, this discussion you're having with me is basically a by proxy medical discussion. You need to go go to the hospital, meet that doctor, and tell them that, you know, I don't want to be here. I feel fine. And if they feel comfortable with that, that carries a lot more weight than me, you know, because I'm, I'm here in you know, in uh, South End Park, you know, in the middle of the night, I can barely get a good look at your pupils. Like, I can't rule this stuff out. Let's go talk to a doctor, you know. And most of the time, they're like, all right, great, bring me up, you know. Or my favorite argument is, we've been here for 25 minutes. The hospital is five minutes away. We could have already been done with this. Right. So let's go get it done. Like, I'm just going to keep being here, keep talking to you. The easiest, fastest way for you to get back to what you want is get in the truck, Go to the hospital, tell them you're fine, and then work with that doc and get out. That's your best, fastest way out of the situation. Yeah, it's that war of attrition. Yep, yep. <laughs> but no, we, uh, yeah, it was, that is definitely the case a lot of times. And I think uh, something we've been dealing with a lot in this district is the classic, oh, do you want to see this person in the ED? And, uh, you know, a couple of things on that would be, that statement generally is, is not true, right? Our, our decision making is, you know, we're going to advise what's best for the patient and determine if they are have the ability to make an informed decision. Uh, and on the flip side, a lot of times nowadays, it's, hey, I'm on the phone for EMS and for the patient. It has nothing to do with whether I'm in the ED or not, because frequently we're, we're not in the ED anymore. We're, we're, our focus is to be on call and to be there for our medical direction. And that's what our focus is in that moment. So that's been a nice change recently here, I think. And uh, hopefully the crews are appreciating that. Yeah, some great advice I got throughout my programs is 
when you call the hospital and you're talking to a doctor, you really want to know your protocols and you want to tell the doctor what your field impression is and what you want to do because you're the one that's there. So you want to follow those protocols and you want to communicate to the doc what's happening. I think a lot of times in the books and when we go through training, there's all this information about, you know, well, if you don't know what to do, call medical direction or reach out to medical direction and all these other things. But ultimately, our job is to form our field impression or what our thoughts are and make a decision and then contact you to make sure that that decision lines up with what the protocols are. So if I, you know, if I call you and I say, Hey, this is a situation, what do you want me to do? That's a different conversation than, Hey, this is what I think needs to happen. Are you good with that? Or do you want me to do something else? And I think it carries a lot more weight with our doctors. When you have a, someone who's squared away, they got a full set of vital signs. They have a thought process. They have a good history for you. They're prepared. And they say, you know, this is the treatment I want to do, or this is the decision I want to make. And then you guys have a lot easier time being like, yep, that sounds good. Or yes, but do this or no, I'm against that for these reasons, you know? Yeah, no, and we're trying real hard to make sure that you guys are chatting with someone that's, you know, EMS trained and uh, has a strong background in EMS and understands the guidelines, the protocols that are out there for y'all and, and works with you on a regular basis. And with that said, that's why we really consider it more of a consult, right? We're not making all the decisions. We're not making the decisions. We're there to be supportive and, and help us get uh, to where the patient needs to be. Yeah, and the, and the ED docs, like you said, the, especially those EMS docs are really good to talk to because they know that, you know, we're not sitting in room 10 with security guards and three nurses and a sitter. Like, you're probably running down Lakeside Avenue right. with someone who has a bleeding head wound, you know, and they're throwing beer cans at a car. And you're like, listen, I under, this is what I'm seeing. I got 10 seconds to figure out what you want me to do. I need an answer right now. And that's a lot different of an environment you know, than being in the ED where you can kind of make those, those decisions. So I really appreciate calling you guys up and, you know, you know, a lot of times people can hear in the background, you know, as we're on the phone, you know, that we're dealing with something. So I appreciate the quick and concise answers for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays you might hear one of my kids screaming in the background too. Yeah, for sure. So I just want to talk a little bit about the secondary brain injury. So we, we go to somebody, let's just, for example, let's just say we go to a motor vehicle accident, you, know, you have someone unresponsive in the front seat, you know, they start to wake up, they obviously have a baseline mental status change, we're seeing increases in pulse pressure or whatever it is, we're, we're concerned about a closed head injury. What are some things, especially if they're really sick, what are some things that we need to focus on as we bring them to the hospital? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, recently, and and for those of us that look at the literature, really delve into it, or even if, if we don't, I, I'd like to, you know, highlight one study that was done recently, and that was done out of the University of Arizona, and it was the EPIC TBI study, and it was just really, really well done, and I think, wow, I've presented on this a few times, I know, uh, for District 3, and I did a Grand Rounds for Health Med, and I think it was for the grand rounds of the health man. I put a like, this is how we do it uh, phrase in there because this is the study that we loved for EMS. This is was looking at some really, dare I say, simple. Uh, it's hard to do the simple things well, but it really is just focusing in on things that we can make a difference on. And it's all about preventing, as you said, that secondary insult to the brain. Uh, those would be hypotension, hypoxia, and then even hyperventilation, which is, I think, a big surprise for a lot of us, uh, that third one being hyperventilation. And just focusing on mitigating those can lead to some pretty significant uh, improvements in outcome. Yeah. Do, do you remember off the top of your head? I, I can't seem to remember the number, but if someone has a traumatic brain injury and they suffer a severe episode, a single episode of hypotension, it leads to an increased mortality, right? Or morbidity. Is that right? Yeah. So a lot of their numbers, uh, you know, I know we talked about it, maybe not going too in the weeds on, on the study itself, but in general speaking, a single episode of hypotension or hypoxia can anywhere between double or triple the mortality rate and like 
secondary episode of that can multiply that by eight. Uh, just incredible numbers that they were obtaining as far as on the flip side, the negative side with these episodes of hypotension, hypoxia, and even hyperventilation, which is one of the worst. Uh, what they were finding was significant increase in mortality, really specifically for what they were describing as a severe TBI group. So not that mild TBI where it's just eh, not so bad and not the ones that are catastrophic that likely are going to have a uh, poor outcome no matter what. Uh, but that that range right in between that that's that severe group is what they're finding that the secondary insults are having the uh, uh, worst prognostication for for their outcome yeah that makes a lot of sense so let's just run through it just a quick case and we'll just kind of apply all these concepts to practice so you know we're we're a paramedic or we're an emt or any of the above we show up to a call we have somebody you know who let's say they you know fall from a ladder they suffered a head injury we have bleeding on the back of the skull you know we have unresponsiveness we're bringing them to the hospital we may or may not have um irregular respirations obviously that's going to be a big clue to us that it could be something going on intracranial you as the doc are kind of overseeing this whole call what is important for the EMS crews to do in the way to the hospital and what do they want to say to the hospital to get those resources ready? Yeah, so I think that overall uh, preventing hypotension uh, is, is a big one. And uh, if we're you know, at the scope of practice where you can give IV fluids, that's a great place to give IV fluids. Uh, that's the main mitigation pathway for that, really trying to maintain those Maps, you know, anywhere above 80, 90, systolics above 90 definitely uh, is an opportunity to to prevent hypotension. As far as hypoxia, we really want to prevent any episodes of hypoxia. So even if the person's saturation is kind of in an acceptable range in the high 90s, still think about putting them on oxygen and preventing an episode of, of hypoxia from there. Uh, you know, using your scope of practice to manage your airway uh, as effectively as you can where, wherever you're doing that or whatever level we're at. So make sure we're managing our airway, preventing hypoxia, giving oxygen, all keys to this uh, whole kind of bundle of care that we're going to give. And then if we are preventing ventilation, really trying to focus and uh, using our end tidal CO2 to prevent uh, hyperventilation. And it's so hard to do. Uh, we've seen studies and studies again and observational studies showing us that even the best of us, our respiratory therapists, the ones who are absolutely the vent uh, vent and uh, BVMers of the world, and they are the masters of, of that, no doubt, find that we all unconsciously breathe too fast and too deep. Um, so really focusing on that there's a few commercial devices out there that can help with that, that give you a little flash every six seconds for an adult. You're supposed to take a breath, uh, you know, one breath uh, every six seconds over a second is usually what we say, um, but nice and slow, not using that full adult BVM bag. That's way too much volume for most people, just yeah. enough to see chest rise and then focusing in on keeping our end title, you know, between 35, 45 uh, is the ideal. Uh, really moving away from uh, aggressive hyperventilation as we'd seen in the past. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really good point with the end title. And I'm just thinking back to the people I ventilated, even the most critical people in true respiratory arrest or failure or distress, any of those guys that I've used the BVM on, I can't remember ever collapsing the bag. So that's a really good point you made about not putting too much volume in. You know, I, I feel like I get like almost halfway through and that's kind of the ventilation that I have time and energy for and I get decent chest rise. I don't remember a time where I ever collapsed the bag. Right. You know, I do remember a case one time when I was doing clinical in the ED, you know, where a patient was crashing and they were trying to do a 
bag valve mass ventilation they had a you know two person technique one person on the seal one person on the bag and the entire bag was crumpled like a paper bag and i remember <laughs> it being pretty shocking but luckily that was only for a few seconds and they were able to get the et tube in and you know that's obviously the cat's pajamas you just put in the air right into the lungs which is awesome yeah so, the, the two-handed mash right yes, yeah i've seen mash. that as well so it makes a lot of sense. Great. And then just so people are kind of clued in. So we bring this patient into the ED. What are some initial therapies you're going to want to do as an ED doc? And then kind of what's the definitive care for best outcome? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, even taking a step back from there to answer a question from before about pre-hospital notification. And every place does pre-hospital notification differently. And understanding your system and why they do it that way is great. And buying into that and and enrolling, you know, uh, if there's opportunity for change, you know, building that into it. But really, for these critical, uh, critically injured patients, traumatic injury patients, uh, definitely TBIs, as significant TBIs in general, it's really an opportunity to activate your trauma team, right? We, we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know if things are going to get significantly worse. Use your local guidelines and protocols to, to really delve into what, you know, what, is it a green trauma, red trauma, priority one, priority two, priority three. We all have our different names and classifications, but following that script is always the best, but really emphasizing any change. Uh, I can't say that I've been to a system that doesn't want to know about change in GCS is the big one. So if we're seeing that change, that's a really good thing to note and pass along. And that's really going to cue everyone into what's going on and the concern for a TBI. As far as kind of as they roll into the ED, uh, things that we're going to focus on are those same things, preventing hypotension, preventing hypoxia, and really making sure that we're doing a better job. All of us are doing a better job of uh, preventing hyperventilation. Uh, is, is become a focus for all of us. So we probably will move towards securing an airway. Uh, definitely when our GCS b- falls below eight, you know, that's kind of our indicator. But in general, we will see trends uh, here and there as to why we might intubate securing the airway if there's concerns for airway compromise, as well as concerns for altered mental status requiring intubation. Uh, but I think that's where this pulls into it. Preventing hypoxia was a big one. Um, so yeah, those are the main things that we'll focus on initially. Yeah, for sure. And I've talked about it before. I think I talked about it with Wendy in the airway podcast we did, but I remember specifically at a um, patient that had a severe head injury was unresponsive and I went and I put an oral airway in and had absolutely no response, no gag reflex, no response at all. And all I did was pick up the radio and I just said, Hey, let the ED know they have no airway reflexes and they're unresponsive from trauma because I don't know if I'm right or not, but I felt like that was something that would help that doc and the trauma team kind of get their head around where this patient's at. Not, you know, the GCS is great, you know, but if I'm busy doing a hundred things back there, I might not have time to really calculate that super effectively, you know, but if I say, Hey, you know, I put an oral airway in, they do not have any airway reflexes and they're completely unresponsive with their regular respirations. That Mm -hmm. gives you guys a, just a quick picture about where their head is at. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes, you know, if, uh, the, at worst, always describe what you're seeing. Doesn't have to be in medical terms, yep. be in layman, layman's terms. Describe what you're seeing, what your concerns are, whether there's that change or that no air, no gag reflex, uh, what you're seeing and why that's concerning to you. Uh, always express that. Any information like that, anything that really needs to be expressed in the pre-hospital notification, I find is in your head, things that we need to be prepared for to be address right when you get there. So having that trauma team or to break away from trauma in general, uh, STEMIs, strokes, things that we want to have resources ready to go the second you roll into the ED. Those are the things that we really want to make sure we get across in that pre hospital notification. Yeah, for sure. And there's definitely been some cases over the last few years that I've dealt with where I don't really know what's going on with them, but I'll just call the comms center and be like, listen, 
you're going to want to dock in there. So, like something is going on. Like, I don't know what it is yet. I'm trying to work on it for you, but this patient's really sick and I don't know why. And I need a dock in there. And then usually you guys will get in there and, you know, it could be something simple, like a terrible, you know, hematocrit or hemoglobin where I'm, no matter how much oxygen I give them, they're just terrible, terribly sick, you know, and not, that's stuff that we may not be able to see pre-hospitally because we don't have the portable lab values and all those crazy things. But, you know, if you have that little spidey sense, especially if you've been in this job for a while and you're like, man, this something's wrong with this person. Like, you know, I, I think something's up. Like there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, you know, I'm going to need a set of hands in there. I think this patient's sick because especially when we're working with the comm center so frequently, they know us well enough to be like, hey, listen, it's Nick. This guy's bad. Like I'm going to need RT. I'm going to need docs. I'm going to need whatever. Like you might want to think about a trauma. You know, they're going to they're going to obviously take a lot of stock in what we have to say if we work with them every day. Um, because they know we're not, you know, we're not upgrading the, you know, the toe pain. You know, if we see something, we're going to tell you that something's up. Well, yeah. And a lot of times I think that spidey sense comes through and, uh, you know, stroke is one that we've recently been discussing a lot about preosmolification. And uh, I recently just made made the point that sometimes we might not be calling the stroke uh, based off of what we're hearing or if it's, it's one of those stories that, you know, people aren't sure and all of a sudden I end up on a phone uh, with the comm center or whomever is giving notification, I might not call the stroke, but at least now I know about that patient and I know that I need to see them, that there's that concern. So I always say I'll do the due justice of, of uh, meeting you at the door. You know what I mean? If there's concern out there and it's, yeah, we're not sure, we're hemming and hawing or vague about whether or not we need to call the STEMI, the stroke, what are those things? But just us getting that phone call is enough that usually tips me to the point that I I'm going to meet you at the door and I'm at least going to say, let's take a look. Or I just want to meet you and, and get the story and see, see this patient and call the ball from there. Um, so however that usually goes, it's still a good pathway and there's still activation of, even if it's just the ED doc being more aware or the charge nurse being more aware, that's going to increase our spidey sense too. Yeah. And that's definitely something that happens in the ED. I know when I did, it was great doing so much clinical in there. Cause I got to see kind of how you guys operate and mimic that in the field. But there were definitely times where, you know, a patient would come in from the waiting room and the nurse would be like, Oh man, like, are they pouring sweat like that five minutes ago? No, you have tearing back pain. Oh, hang on a second. Hey, Dr. George, like you need to come in here for a second. And it might be as simple as like, all right, what's the story? Okay. And you might be like, Oh no, I looked at their chart. It's okay. Or you might be like, yeah, let's go. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know? And I think having the same type of, you know, respect and uh, position that the nurses have is a definitely a really good nod towards EMS, you know, especially when you have those medics out there from other parts of the country, maybe, you know, 10, 20 years under their belt, if they're calling up me like, listen, doc, you know, this is bad, something's up, you know, like, I think they're having a or, you know, an aortic dissection, like that's going to cue you guys in and for you guys to have this new school mentality of, you know, that I, I trust him. Let me go take a look at least. Let me go, you know, verify the story as opposed to, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Where it's like, listen, I'm the doc. You relax. Like, we'll take care of it when you get here. Like, don't worry about that stuff. Like, you just bring them. Like, your job is a UPS truck. You're not a, you're not a clinician. But I really appreciate, you know, that type of uh, mentality from the docs. It goes a long way. Yeah, there's a, a lot of literature out there on transitions of care and EMS to, uh, to the ED pre-hospitalification and then of course the bedside transition of care and really looking at that and Australia has done a lot of studies, Scandinavia has done some some really interesting studies and they have much different pre-hospital constructs of providers as well. So taking that into consideration, but one of the things that everyone expressed and uh, really is one of the key key variables, there's 20 plus that they've studied, I feel like in some of the bigger uh, lit reviews that I've looked at, but having this shared mental model, understanding what what you do in the field, what you're experiencing in the field, 
what your scope of practice is, and then vice versa. You understanding how the ED works, how we function, what it looks like on a Monday at 2 p.m. versus a Saturday night versus those types of things. Having that shared working mental model of who we are and what we do really is the key pivotal thing in uh, creating good transitions of care, which I think lead to great patient care and continuity of, of patient care. Oh, absolutely. I think two big things that we should keep in mind in EMS is what's going to happen to the patient when they get to the ED. You know, little little things like something I started doing a couple of years ago that I get a lot of positive feedback on is if I think someone's going to be a sepsis rule out, I'll use chloroprep on my IV site. And, yes. you know, if I think there's some sort of potential for a CT scan, I'll use a pressure rated lock. Like little, little things like that, you know, or if I think someone might get admitted, I'll do an IV in the forearm as opposed to the AC so that, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're not getting poked seven times. Little, little things like that. But those all came from doing clinical in the ED. No one ever teaches you that stuff, you know, but it does make a difference for patient outcome. And those nurses, you know, we roll in a stroke and, you know, you, you bring them to the CT scanner, you know, the look on that text face when you say, oh, that's, you can't use that. That's not pressure rated. You got to pull it out. And now you're holding tamponade. You're trying to swap the lot. Like, come on, that's, you know, we can save time on that. We carry the equipment, you know, and I think that's part of the preceptors just passing that information along, you know, and then just, just following up, you know, if, if you're not sure, if you have one of those patients and you're like, ah, something was up, but I'm not really sure you take another couple of runs, head back in in like four or five hours and check with that doctor and be like, Hey, remember room 16? What was up with that guy? Did you find anything? And they might say something you, you know, you weren't thinking of like, Oh, well, they had a huge troponin and a massive STEMI that was progressing. Did you know that? But like, no, no idea. Like weird presentation. So I think, uh, just closing the loop and just making sure if you don't know something about somebody, go ask so that you don't aren't in that position again. Um, and then just thinking about how can we as EMS help you with your definitive care or the things we can do to try to streamline that in the future is a big deal. Yeah. And I, and I think on that topic is continuing to, uh, work with the ED with our systems of care to really improve transitions of care. I think that's still an area that, uh, requires a lot of focus, a lot of attention, a lot of retraining and a lot of collaboration to make it work for both of us. And I think that is the biggest thing is us knowing that story, understanding what you saw, what you heard, what you did, uh, and making sure that passes along. We lose up to 70% of the information frequently, vital signs, yeah, get documented sure. wrong from one thing to another. Yeah. But if we could find ways to really shore up all the great work that EMS is doing in the field uh, and, and shoring up that conversation and that, that transition of care and passing along, I think that's one way of, low-hanging fruit in my opinion You're, oh yeah there's nothing more that we need to do i think when we talk about you know tbis once again the focus of epic tbi with increasing survival uh meaningful survival and the severe tbis uh upwards of doubling or even tripling in the intubated cohort um, that's amazing and simply by focusing on preventing hypotension preventing hypoxia and preventing hyperventilation doing those three things relatively simple when we talk about all the things we've looked at for tbi different hormone injections all sorts of crazy interventions and just by doing those things we can improve survival uh it's just an absolutely amazing study they looked at about twenty six thousand patients their inclusion group was twenty two thousand patients this is not a small study this was a statewide guideline change um and just really as i like to joke this is how we do it this is a this is an ems study uh not super crazy tech in, in our area of technology to, to make these changes. And it, it changed kind of just the way that we've put our focus when we're out in the field to have this impact is, is massive. So we've, you know, here in Vermont, we've changed the state guideline to kind of fit with this. Uh, and around the country, we're seeing big changes with that. I think other small things just to point out that anyone can do is if you're really worried about a traumatic brain injury, 
uh, making sure that we keep the head a bed elevated. Um, you can consider putting a cervical collar on. I know that's a controversial topic, not even for say, per se just for the cervical injury, but to help to increase new, uh, neutral head positioning, help increase venous drainage, venous flow, um, anything that could help prevent increased pressure in the brain. There's all sorts of little side things that we can do uh, to help prevent that. And head of bed elevation, cervical collar use, not directly talked about in this study, but just good practices uh, could help prevent uh, worsening TBI. That's for sure. And obviously, we have a lot of potential to see these both, you know, from our classic traumatic injuries, the car accidents, the motorcycle accidents, but also just, you know, the little mechanical trip and fall in the bathroom in the garage, you know, so always be on the lookout for this stuff. Uh, thank you so much for being here. If anybody has any questions on this stuff, you can always get a hold of me, Nick at NetsVT.com. Check out our website at NetsVT.com. And as always, keep continuing to listen to our podcast if you like it. Um, It's available on Spotify, iTunes, and available on our website um, at netsvt.com. So thanks, Dr. George. Really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, guys.